0: And so today, if you have your Bible, I want to just invite you to open to 1 Timothy, the letter from the Apostle Paul to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. We are walking through in this series, we're walking line by line through uh, the Word of God in 1 Timothy, and last weekend we began this series uh, with an introduction of who the author is, who the audience is, and uh, we got to learn a little bit about uh, why Paul was writing this letter. This is from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. If you weren't here last week, let me just uh, catch you up a little A little bit of review. The Apostle Paul pastored in a place called Ephesus longer than anywhere else. In all of his ministry travels, he spent more time there than anywhere else. And uh, later, in, towards the end of his ministry, he took his, his number one protege, the one who he said is like a son in the faith to me, Timothy, and he planted him there to pastor that, church. Last week, we saw that Paul's first instruction to Timothy in verse 3 was, stay there. Like, I want you to stay there. He, he reminded him, when I was with you, I told you, now I'm putting it in writing. I want you to stay there and deal with certain people. Last week, we kind of played with that phrase a little bit and, and the reality that we all deal with certain people in the church, and sometimes it can make it a little complicated, Amen. I think I must have gave some people a guilty conscience last week because I got a few text messages and emails, you know. You know, I'm sorry for being certain people. But can I, can I just say, sometimes I'm the certain people, okay? I'm the pastor of the church. There's not a perfect church because there's no perfect people. And I often tell first-time guests, listen, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. You'll mess it up, <laughs> right? Because you're not perfect either. There's no perfect church, but but there were certain people and certain issues that were, they had the potential of, of disrupting and slowing down and even stopping the advancement of the gospel. And in verse four of the first chapter, Paul says that's what it's all about. We gotta get the gospel train moving again. And so I need you to stay there and I need you to command certain people. And then and then he starts talking about how the law of God is good if you use it correctly. And as he thinks about how the law condemns us of sin, Paul begins to testify about how he himself is not worthy to be an apostle outside of the abundant grace and mercy of God that it saved him he gives this testimony and then he makes this statement that he says everyone in the church should know this you should remember this you should say it often and it was this statement in verse 15 and it goes like this Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he said everybody ought to know that and say that because that's what the gospel is all about Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then he gets to the end of the first section, verse 17, and this is where we ended last week, and he says a doxology, Again, it's a a statement that we ought to learn and say, and the, the early church would say this often, so I want to put this on the screen. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, and this is the way we ended last weekend. I want to begin here today. Would you just read it out loud with me? Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So now we're going to pick up in verse 18 of Paul's instructions to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you might or you may fight the battle well. What command is he talking about? He's actually talking about the command that he gave in verse three. So Paul's doing something that, that all good preachers are notorious for doing. He takes a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail you know, from verse three where he says, I wanna give you a command. And then he says, everything that we said last Sunday. And now he comes back to verse 18 and he says, about that command. And so Paul is wanting to remind Timothy about this command to stay there in Ephesus, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. It'd be so much easier to just skip out, go somewhere else, start something else, stay there and deal with certain people that are not committed to teaching correct doctrine and they have the potential of stopping the advancement of the gospel. But now Paul in verse 18, he adds another layer of motivation. For staying. In other words, he says, like, when I was with you in verse 3, I told you to stay there. Now you're opening a letter, and I'm writing to you, and I'm saying, again, stay there. But if me telling you and if me writing you isn't enough, now in verse 18, he gives another motivator for why Timothy should be committed to the work. And the motivation is the prophecy. Look at verse 18. He says, the prophecies that were once made about you. Now, we don't know exactly what the prophecy was, but when you look at what the Bible shows us about this young man, Timothy, we can piece the moment together. In Acts chapter 16, it says the brothers in Lystra, where Paul met Timothy, his hometown, it says they spoke well of Timothy. So Timothy was an upstanding person in the community of faith. Men of God spoke well of him. In 1 Timothy 4.14, it says the elders laid hands on him, they prophesied, and he received a gift of the Holy Spirit. When you read 2 Timothy 1 and 6, it says Paul laid his hands on him. And then at the end of this letter we're studying now, in 1 Timothy 6.12, it says, Timothy, who was known to be a little bit timid, a little bit reserved, it says, he spoke boldly and made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So imagine the moment happening this morning. There's a young person in the church that we know to be a, a, a servant of God. He loves the church. He's in good standing with God's people, and we call him down to the front, and the elders of the church, we gather around him and, and lay hands on him and, and pray. People begin to speak prophetic words over his life. The Holy Spirit gives him a supernatural gift of the Spirit. The, the leader of the church comes and places his hands on him, and all of a sudden, that young man turns around, and he begins to to declare with boldness like he's never had before the Word of God. Can I tell you, that moment happens all the time here. It happens all the time. These students that just got back from youth convention, some of them, they would have never dreamed of getting up on that stage in front of hundreds and thousands of people, but they did it because the Word of God has come alive on the inside of them because men and women of God spoke to their God-given destiny laid hands on them, prayed over them. The Holy Spirit gifted them. And Paul is saying, Timothy, remember that. Remember that moment in your life. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 and 3 that the gift of prophecy, when it's used correctly, it strengthens, it encourages, and it comforts the body of Christ. There are times in your life where all you have to hang on to is a comforting, strengthening, and encouraging word that you received. Amen? And you need to know in those lean times, you need to know in those difficult seasons that that not only is God's word true, but God through the power of the Holy Spirit has spoken a promise over my life. This last week while we were with the students in Columbus, Ohio, they opened one of the services by reading a prophecy that was given by another student at a youth convention on August 1st in 2018. So at the beginning of this year's conference, they read something that a student spoke by the leading of the Holy Spirit several years ago. I'll just give you part of what was spoken August 1st, 2018. Be prepared. Change is coming. I am a God of unconventional ways, and you are a generation with an unconventional anointing. That word was released again just a few days ago to thousands of Pentecostal students from all over the nation gathered in Columbus. Why'd they do that? They were doing what Paul did for Timothy. He said, I know you know the word. I know you know the assignment. I know you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit, but don't forget what was prophesied about you. It's coming to pass. Can I just say, God still wants to speak prophetically to the church today In this, uh, earlier this year in the spring, I preached a three-week series I called Sons and Daughters. And on one of the weeks, we dealt specifically with the, the promise that Peter repeated on the day of Pentecost, the prophecy that Joel had said in the Old Testament, saying, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I received an email recently from one of the senior adults in our church And she mentioned that message that I preached back on Pentecost Sunday in May. And she wrote this. She said, your teaching on the general gift of prophecy was something I had never heard before in all my 55 years of walking with the Lord. I had never asked for the gift of prophecy, even though we're supposed to earnestly desire it. That's exactly what the word says in 1 Corinthians 14. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. And then she wrote this Now that I understand what it is, I earnestly do. Can I just say, you are never too old and you've never been saved for too long to get in line for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life? Amen. I don't know, maybe you've never received anything from the Holy Spirit before, but that ought to excite somebody this morning to know that, that, that there's no expiration date on your potential. So long as you have breath in your body, God wants to empower you. For works of service. And Paul tells Timothy, by recalling the prophecies once made about you, here's what you can do in verse 18. He says, you can fight the battle well. You can fight the battle well. Verse 19, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have also suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. So Paul says in, in verse 19, there are some people that they've suffered shipwreck Verse 20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Whoa, like that's serious, right? I don't have time this morning to, to go into detail about these two men, Hymeneus and Alexander, except to say that they communicate and illustrate for us the clear reality in Scripture that it is possible To lose your salvation it is possible Paul says specifically these men who were walking in the faith Timothy you got to hold on to the promise of God these men haven't in fact what they did is they shipwrecked their faith and Paul when he says they shipwrecked their faith that that is a, a very vivid illustration because by this point in his life he has experienced shipwreck not just once four times and in every occasion, he lost everything except his life. So Paul's response to their actions, the fact that they, they, they claim to be walking in the truth, but they've shipwrecked their faith, his response is, hand them over to Satan. To teach them a lesson now that's not the same thing as like a cruel vernacular today I know you deal with some people that claim to be Christians but they're hard-headed and hard-hearted and you'd like to say well the Bible says I can tell them to go to no that's not what the Bible says you can't tell them to go to hell but what you can do and what you should do sometimes is turn them over to Satan, but that doesn't mean, uh, that's not a punitive thing. That's not, that's not Paul saying, good riddance, you know what? Just let, let the devil have them. That's not what he's saying at all. Look at verse 19 again. Verse 20, he said, I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. There was a similar situation in 1 Corinthians chapter five. The church had a young man in their congregation in 1 Corinthians five who was, it was known in the community that he was sleeping with his stepmom. And they were actually proud of the grace that they were showing this young man. We see a lot of this confusion in the church today. If it was happening today, they might even hang a flag in the window to say, We support people like this guy. And Paul gets this letter from Corinth and he finds out that there's a man in the church who's having a a well-known, openly sexual relationship with his stepmom, and Paul responds, and he says, even the pagans don't do this. What are you doing? And in verse five, Paul says, hand this man over to Satan. Why? Not not to to, just get rid of him, not to say, like, we, we don't love this guy. He says, no, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, sometimes when a person is running headlong down a highway of rebellion towards an eternity in hell, the the worst thing you could do is embrace them with love and grace and acceptance and kindness. When what you should really do is allow them to be enrolled in the school of hard knocks. The spiritual implication is turn them over to Satan. God in his grace sometimes will love you enough to lift his hand of protection off of your life and allow you to experience the repercussions and the ramifications of your own choices. God allowed the prodigal son to to come to his senses sitting in the pig pen, envying the slop that the pigs were eating. And it says he came to himself and he turned back to his father's house. Paul says sometimes the, the, the most loving thing you can do is just turn them over to the worst tutor they could ever have. The devil is not a kind tutor. His methods of education are not repetition and encouragement. No, it's pain and turmoil. And all this stuff is going on and Timothy's dealing with it. And so chapter one ends with Paul saying what he said at the beginning. Timothy, stay there. Be committed to the gospel. If I could say it this way in 2023, Timothy, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Be committed. Now look with me in chapter two. As we move into chapter two, you have to remember why Paul is writing this letter. And last week I gave you the key text for the whole letter. It's in chapter three, verse 14. Paul answers the question, why am I writing a letter to you, Timothy? In chapter three and verse 14, he says this, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That's why he's writing. He says, Timothy, I want you to know how people should conduct themselves in God's household. So now as we move into chapter two, he's gonna start giving some specific instructions about how people should conduct themselves in God's household. If you're there in 1 Timothy chapter two, look at the first verse, Paul's first instruction for how the church should operate. He says this in verse one of chapter two. I urge you then, first of all, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made For all people. So Paul says, first thing I want you to know, Timothy, the church should pray. Come on, the church ought to be a place of prayer. Jesus quoted Isaiah and he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so he says right here in the first verse of the second chapter, I want you to pray for all, all people. That means everybody. But then in verse three, he mentions a specific group of people. Look at verse three. He says, I want you to, or verse two, he says, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, understand this verse, because some people have taken this to mean this is a desire, a prayer, for the ability to just live a quiet, middle-class life, free from stress, free from criticism, fly under the radar. This is what we want, Lord. We just want to live this quiet, little, peaceful Christian life in the corners of society. We don't want to make waves. We don't want to make a splash. Can I tell you, that's not what Paul was saying. In fact, in the next letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 12, he says, In fact, anyone who wants to live a life that honors Christ Jesus will face persecution. So Paul's not pulling any punches about the fact that we are swimming against the current here. But he says, I'm praying. I'm praying that we can live peaceful and quiet lives because they were experiencing something we as uh, 21st century Americans know nothing about. That's real persecution. He wasn't saying, we just want to live this quiet little Christian life and not make any waves. What he was saying is, no, we actually want the opportunity to live a Christian life. To not be killed for our efforts. And to not be ostracized and shut down and have our churches burned. Like, no, we just want the opportunity to live a peaceful Christian life. Why? Because the best argument for Christianity is Christianity. Come on, the best sermon is your life. The greatest witness about what Christianity is all about is Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. They'll see your good works and glorify God in heaven. He told his disciples in John 13, 35, this command I give you, love one another because the world will know you're my disciples because you love one another. And so the the heart's desire is that, that we could make an argument, a case for Christianity by the Christianity that we live in the public space. What a blessing we have, how enviable the American church is to the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before. They're probably looking down at us going, I can't believe the opportunity that you guys have. No one's ever tried to kill you? I can't imagine. But you know what's also true? The greatest argument against Christianity is Christianity. Christianity when it's not lived according to the word of god. So Paul's focus for encouraging prayer. He said this is this is first. First of all, I want the church to pray. It's a very gospel-centric command. In fact, he's still focused on what he said in chapter one, verse four, the advancing of the gospel. Like, that's my concern. If this church or any church is not moving the the needle forward on the evangelism of the world, on the expansion of God's kingdom, if we're not advancing the gospel, we're just a social club. This is what matters, the advancing of the gospel. And so he prays this prayer. He says, this is my first command that the church be a praying church. Notice the emphasis in verse one through seven here on all people, all people. He says, and just read it with me, verse one, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, For there is only one God and one mediator between God and mankind. That's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This is now, has been witnessed to at the proper time. And then he adds in verse 7. And for this purpose, I was appointed as a herald, as an apostle. I'm I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. And a true and faithful teacher Of the Gentiles, in other words, he's saying not of just the Jews, because that was the problem, of the Gentiles, of all people. So he's saying that this gospel, your prayer life, it ought to reflect the heart of the king we're praying to. Come on, church. How many times do we allow our prayers to go no farther than the lives that we're personally interacting with? You know, we have no bigger concerns than like, you know, stretch out the gas mileage in my car, bless the food, give me a good night's sleep. Watch over my kids. When God said in his word, ask of me and I'll give the nations as an inheritance to you. And we pray these these small teeny weeny prayers to an awesome God. Paul says, I want you to pray for all people. Because God wants all people to be saved and Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all people. Verse 8, look at it with me. Therefore, now, whenever you see therefore in your Bible, if you're starting there, back up a little bit and read what's before it so you know what it's there for. But since you've been paying attention and we know, Paul's saying, I need the church to pray. I need you to pray gospel centric, kingdom driven, focused prayers. I need you to pray for all people. Therefore, verse 8, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and without disputing. In verse nine through 15, Paul's gonna, he's gonna take a turn here. Buckle your seatbelt. He's gonna take a, a hard turn and he's gonna get into some of the details in Ephesus. And let me just say before we even read any further in chapter two, the next seven verses in the word of God are some of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible and misunderstandings about what we're about to read have had a, uh, caused a lot of conflict in the kingdom of God and they've done a lot of damage to God's people. Now, How many of you know the Bible enough and you know the author of God's word enough to know even before we read it that that was not God's intention in what we're about to read? God did not, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire writers to put something on the page that would cause damage and confusion in heartache to a lot of people in the body of Christ and yet these verses that we're about to read have done as much and more so it's important before we read them that you understand something this letter though this and second timothy and titus are called the pastoral epistles because Paul's writing to young pastors about how people should conduct themselves in the church understand this this is not a ministry manual This is a personal letter to ministry colleagues dealing with real issues in the church they lead. Now now there there are some timeless principles here and there are some timely reminders that apply to every church in every culture, but you can't forget, Paul didn't write this to every church in every culture. He wrote it to Timothy in Ephesus. So important that we read scripture in context. Now, even with that said, you're still going to have to chew the fat with me a little bit here, okay? Verse 9, also, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Say, wait a minute, hold on. You're talking about we need to pray. We need the men lift up holy hands. Now you care about what the women are wearing? <laughs> like, what? like what? you talk about a hard left turn. I tried to warn you. But look at it with me again. Verse 9, when, when, when Paul begins, I also want the women. A literal translation of the Greek text actually begins, likewise also the women. In other words, I want the men to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and without disputing. Likewise, also the women. Like, I need the men to pray, and I need the women to pray. But then, in verse 8, he's going to also give some careful instruction about some concerns going on in the church, specifically about the outward appearance of the women. Now, we were at that convention this week with all these teenagers, and it was amazing. Like We were at the nationwide arena. Thousands of Pentecostal students from all over the nation come pouring out after 10 p.m., and there's this collision that happens on the streets of Columbus, which is a college town. We're right there on the main uh, drag, and so there's two crowds converging. There's all these Pentecostal teenagers and and youth leaders coming out of the arena, and there's all these young adults hanging out at the bars and the nightclubs, and and so I'm just driving back to my hotel. I'm like weaving through traffic, trying not to hit anybody, and you know what? For five nights, every night, I never had a problem at all figuring out which ones just came out of a, a Pentecostal church service and which ones just came out of the club. It was real easy. In Ephesus, it wasn't so easy. And so Paul is speaking to something that was happening there in the culture. Saying that there's there's something that's not right about the way you're presenting yourself before god now now i've got i've got daughters and so i always like i hear the rebuttal in my head to comments like this and maybe the question you would think is well why isn't there anything about the men's wardrobe right again paul's writing to timothy in ephesus if that were an issue, he would have spoken to that. And so just because God doesn't speak specifically to the men in this moment, how many of you know there's a practical principle to be applied in our lives? Like, you know, like for our worship team, for example, we don't have a we don't have a real stiff dress code. You know, you don't have to wear a tie. You don't have to wear a suit. We're pretty casual and comfortable, but there's a dress code. There's a dress code. If you're gonna be on this platform, if you're gonna be leading people in worship. So Paul is dealing with something specifically in Ephesus. He says, I want the women, I want the women adorning themselves, but not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. I want them adorning themselves, verse 10 says, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. What he's not saying is don't fix your hair, don't get a nice outfit, don't wear jewelry. He's not saying that at all. He was speaking to a culture where outward excessiveness was associated with promiscuity. Ephesus was the, the, the centerpiece of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and and the women would, would dress up lavishly to go to this goddess of fertility to worship and they would try to impress God with the way that they looked. Can I tell you this morning, you can't impress God with your Sunday best. Most importantly, what Paul's actually doing is he's contrasting a cultural trend with a spiritual discipline. He's saying, adorn your life, but not with jewelry and hairstyles and expensive clothes. Adorn your life with faith and good deeds. Then he says in in verse 11, the hill's about to get steeper. Climb with me. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, let me just state the obvious. In 2023, that sounds like a totally negative statement. Like, you read that, and you're like, you jerk. <laughs> who, are you? who are you? And, you know, honestly, if, if I just said that in 2023 without context, it does, it does. Like, who are you to put me in my place? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. But Paul's not writing to America in 2023. He's writing to a Roman context where women were third-class citizens where even among the Jews and the Gentiles, they were deprived of education. Jewish women weren't even allowed to study the Torah in the church. They weren't even counted in the synagogue. Rabbinical scholars would would say that the best way to learn is in silence. Scholars would say that silence is a wall around wisdom. In the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words silence and submission are together because silence and submission is considered the ultimate state of receptivity. So, so read it through a cultural lens and recognize what Paul is saying in this verse. He's saying a woman should learn. That was the shocking part of the verse, not the silence and submission part that we filter it through our American lens. He's saying... I want want women to learn. And the way that we learn, the way that they all learned, was in silence and submission. Now, the last four verses here in this chapter, uh, I actually spoke on these a few months ago, but the word of God is always sharpening us. It's worth repeating. So I just want you to quickly look with me at the last few verses. Admittedly, these are some difficult verses to understand, but verse 12 Paul goes on and he says I do not per- permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, that verse right there, maybe more than any other, has has done so much damage to the kingdom of God and limited our gospel effectiveness. But he goes on and he says in verse 13 for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, on face value, there are so many issues with that text right there, especially the last part that says the way of salvation is birthing a child. How many of you know enough of the Bible to know that that ain't right? So what are you talking about, Paul? Nobody's getting saved by having babies. That's nowhere in your teaching or Jesus. That's not in the Bible. But it looks like Paul just said it is. You have to understand the context of Paul's words to Timothy. The biggest issue that he's dealing with here is is false teaching that's infiltrating the church at Ephesus. As I mentioned a moment ago, the, the worship of the goddess Artemis, the goddess of fertility, was the hub of society in Ephesus. Many of the people that are now in the church got saved out of that lifestyle. They still wore those clothes. They showed up to worship a different God, but they still dressed the same way. They had some of the same outward practices, and they had some of the same beliefs. In fact, Paul talks about some of those beliefs. Later in the letter, he says, such teaching comes from hypocritical liars. When we get to chapter five in a few weeks, you'll see he spends a lot of time discussing the women again, and he says, some of them have become idlers. They've also become busybodies. They talk nonsense. They say things they ought not to. And we've already learned from Alexander and Hymenaeus, he has no problem calling people out. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, like these women cannot be the teachers. In verse 12, he says, I do not permit women to teach or to assume authority. That word authority right there is such a key part of this text because that word, in, in the Greek language this was written in, is the, only, is the only place that word appears in Scripture. It's the only place. Every other time the word authority is used, the word is exousia. It means a rightful, positive authority it's it's leadership it's the one who's in charge in any context but this word a woman ought not to have authority is the word authentine it means to dominate to usurp it means to take control it has a forceful and a negative connotation to it so rather than saying women can't be in charge of anything that would be totally wrong what he's actually saying is don't let these women dominate don't let them usurp your authority This is the same Timothy that he's gonna say in chapter four, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but be an example to the believers. This is the same Timothy in his second letter to him. He says, I thank God for the faith that was in your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. In other words, I thank God that women taught you how to love and serve Jesus. This is the same church of Ephesus where when Paul went and planted the church and he got uh, ran out of town, he left a woman named Priscilla and her husband Aquila in charge to teach the word. And it's well known in scripture that Priscilla and Aquila, and her name's always mentioned first as the leader there in teaching, she taught Apollos, a man, from Alexandria who became an influential witness and evangelist for the gospel. At the end of Romans, Paul honors Priscilla as a co-worker in the church. So take all of that reality from scripture and put this verse in context. Paul saying in verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What's that all about? Paul's saying, first of all, these women, they they can't teach. He's going to get back to it later in the letter. They can't teach. And and what he's saying is women are not superior to men. That's what he's saying. Women are not superior to men. why, Why is he saying that? Now, saying women are not superior to men is not the same thing as saying men are superior to women. The reason he's saying it is because some of the teaching in the worship of the goddess Artemis actually believed that Eve saved mankind by listening to the serpent. That Adam was corrupted, but that Eve listened to the serpent and saved mankind. And they were teaching that because of that, women were superior to men. And this statement about women being saved through childbirth, what is that all about? Well, again, if you if you just read that, you're gonna go away very confused. But women in Ephesus were praying to this goddess of fertility. It's interesting that her name, Artemis, was also another name for Artemis, was Sotira, which derives from the Greek word for salvation, Sotiras. So they were praying to this goddess for salvation through fertility. So it makes a lot more sense when you understand what people were doing that Paul is not saying if you have a baby, you'll be saved. He was saying when you're giving birth, when you're having a child, don't look to this goddess for salvation. Keep your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is your savior. If you continue in the faith and in love and in holiness with propriety, that's what's gonna bring you salvation. As we get to the end here today, I, I just want to state something I think is ironic and pretty significant that that Paul is giving us some really, Tough meat to chew on. He's saying some things that that a lot of people in the church struggle to understand and and to parse out the nuance of the text and the culture. But I think it's interesting that this actually underscores one of the biggest concerns that the apostle Paul has. And as we move through this letter in the next few weeks, you're going to be amazed at how often Paul mentions sound doctrine. That's his concern. He doesn't want the church, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, to be shipwrecked. He wants Timothy to stay there and deal with certain people and hold up the word of God and handle the law correctly and and make sure the church is not self-centered, but it's praying for all people because God wants them all to be saved and Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all people. And he wants their worship to be done decently and in order. He doesn't want the church to be a reflection of the culture, but of the kingdom. He's concerned with sound doctrine. That's why it's so important that we we understand the context because you can say one thing and it can mean four different things. Like, let me give you an example. Just think about this sentence for a moment. It was a ball. What does that mean? It was a ball. I'll tell you what it means. I was standing in the batter's box. The pitch came. I watched it go by. The umpire said, strike. I said, it was a ball. Took my wife out over the weekend. We got all dressed up, went to this really fancy place. In fact, it was so formal. It was a ball. These students, they got back from youth convention and they came piling out of the van yesterday. They were all laughing and carry on. And I said, did you guys have a good time? They said, It was a ball. I was mowing the lawn over by the golf course. I thought I saw a mushroom in the grass, but when I went over it, man, it made a racket. It was a ball. See, one sentence, four completely different statements. And we are over 2,000 years removed from the context and the culture and the conversational dialect of the people that Paul was writing to. So we have to be very careful as God's people to rightly divide his word, to let scripture interpret scripture. And Paul, he's got a lot more commands that he wants instructions that he wants to give to Timothy about the church. But I think it's pretty significant how he starts. He said, this is the first thing. Timothy, the church needs to pray. The church needs to pray for all people because God wants them all to be saved and Jesus ransomed his life for all people. I want men to pray and I want women to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubt. I want God's people to pray. And and, and I don't want the culture to twist your theology. Timothy, I I want Ephesus to be a word-centered church. That's the heart of Paul for that church. It's our heart for this church. So we're gonna close in prayer today. And I, I wanna invite you, if you're able, would you just stand with me to honor the presence of the Lord in these moments? As we get ready to close this service, Can I just invite you to go back in your mind for a moment with me to where we began? In 1 Timothy chapter one and verse 18, Paul's already spoken the word face to face. He's written the word, but then he says to Timothy, this command that I'm giving you, I'm giving it to you in keeping with the prophecies that were made about you, so that by recalling them, the prophetic words that God spoke over your life, you may fight the battle well. And I just wonder today, if there's anyone here that the Holy Spirit has spoken some prophetic words over your life. Maybe it was recent, maybe it was years ago. But life happens. You deal with certain people you lose sight. And I just wonder if you're here today and the Holy Spirit wants to remind you of the prophecies that were spoken over your life. Maybe it had happened for you like it happened for Timothy. Other men and women of God, they gathered around you. They laid hands on you. They prayed for you. They prophesied. The Holy Spirit gave you gifts. And there was a time, like Timothy, you would have lifted up your voice and made a bold confession of your faith. But today, you need to be reminded of the prophetic word that God's spoken. He's not finished with you yet. He hasn't forgotten. And his word never returns void. You can't cancel his purpose for your life. You can miss it, but you can't cancel it. If that's you today, as we close this service, I wanna ask some of our prayer team, if you just come and stand along the front, I I want to give you the opportunity to just wrap your faith around a word. Maybe you felt like that word's expired. I missed my opportunity. That was a word God spoke when I was in high school. That was a word God spoke when I was at college. That's probably never gonna happen at this point in my life. But if God has spoken a word over you, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to remind you of his word. And maybe maybe someone else is here today and, and you say, you know, I, I need a prophetic word from God. I, I know what God's word says. I'm, I'm trying to live this thing out. But like Timothy, I, I mean, this is some tough sledding. Like this is not easy. The cross is heavy and I need a prophetic word of encouragement to put some wind in my sails. I already mentioned to you earlier in this service, the gift of prophecy is a word of encouragement, exhortation, and comfort. It's a word that builds you up, fires you up, or holds you up. And if you're here today and you say, that's what I need. I need a word. I need a prophetic word. I want to invite you as I close in prayer. For either of those two reasons, to, to just step out from where you are, come and find one of these men or women. And just tell them, like, I, I just I just need a word from the Lord. They will pray over you, and they will encourage you, and they will build you up, and they will comfort you. If you say, you know what, God, God has spoken over my life, and I just need to believe again. I need to grab a hold of the word. As I pray this closing prayer, I want to invite you. Would you just step out from where you are? Come and find a place at this altar so that we can pray with you and believe with you Paul, Paul wanted so bad to be there in person he didn't have this privilege the best he could do is write it down we can do better we can put a hand on your shoulder we can pray a prayer of faith we can speak prophetically God can gift you again and you can speak boldly and fulfill your God given purpose so if you want to respond today even now Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to pray. You might just have to ask the person next to you, hey, can I I get through? Excuse me. They won't be offended. They'll make room. Just slip out of the aisle and come find a place right now where you can just seek the Lord. We want to pray with you. God, we thank you today for your word. Thank you that it's unchanging, that it's timeless and it's timely. That though it was this word specifically was written to a church in the first century, in a unique cultural context, God your word, because it is inspired of the Holy Spirit, it speaks right now into our lives, into our circumstance, in our situation. And God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word over this church. God make us a church that is prayerful that we would pray not just selfish, self-centered, colonizing prayers, but that we would pray for all people, those like us, those not like us, that they would be saved because Jesus came to ransom all people and that you've called us to both Jew and Gentile, all people, God, make us a church that is prayerful. Help us, Lord, to be a people that that don't allow our theology to be twisted and conformed to the patterns of this war world but lord may we be transformed as our minds are renewed as we fix our gaze on jesus the the living word of god god we thank you that that right now you're still pouring your spirit out on your sons and daughters god as we pray for one another may there be a release of giftings and and prophetic words of encouragement, not just in this moment, but Lord, in all of our relationships, even even tonight, even while church members are just hanging out and having ice cream at Jim Max. God, I, I pray that encouragement would happen that edification would happen, that comfort would come as we get in proximity and the Holy Spirit has the freedom to operate in and through his people. God, we thank you for building a strong church in this generation. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Come on, let's just give God thanks for his word today. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Amen. Amen. God bless you.